From WGCU News, this is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. In 2018, Florida voters passed Amendment 4 to the state constitution by a nearly two-thirds margin. The intent of the amendment was to restore voting rights of Floridians with felony convictions after they completed all terms of their sentence, including parole or probation. It does not apply to Floridians convicted of murder or sexual offenses. Despite strong bipartisan support, as soon as Amendment 4 passed, the Republican legislature passed legislation limiting its scope to only include people who owed no money to the state. In the lead-up to the midterm elections, Governor Ron DeSantis announced that the state of Florida's new Office of Election Crimes and Security had arrested 20 people who allegedly had knowingly registered to vote illegally during the previous election in 2020. He said this was the first step in addressing wide-scale voter fraud, despite there being no evidence of such fraud here in Florida. The problem is there's no straightforward way for former felons or for election officials to determine whether someone who has completed their sentence for a felony conviction has satisfied all requirements to be eligible to vote, and the people who were arrested were allowed to register to vote in 2020 without issue. Today we're going to dig into this story and discuss whether there are efforts underway to create a system that could provide clarity for former felons and election officials as to who is and who is not allowed to vote. I spoke earlier today with someone from the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, which spearheaded the effort to get Amendment 4 on the ballot, and someone from the Brennan Center for Justice who's advocating for and providing guidance to those who were arrested and their attorneys to pursue dismissals of the cases. Let's hear that conversation now. Neil Voles is Deputy Director for the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. Neil, thanks for coming in today. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to, to talk with you all today. And Patrick Berry is a counsel in the Brennan Center for Justice's Democracy Program. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Neil, I'd like to start with some history. Can you give us sort of the highlights or maybe the pivot points of what's unfolded since Amendment 4? It was passed by voters about over 60 percent or around 60 percent of voters in 2018, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in, in 2018, uh, voters ended a 150-year-old law that uh, created a lifetime ban for people with felony convictions from voting in the state of Florida. So to put that in perspective, that's about the population of New Hampshire. So lots of folks in Florida face this lifetime ban because of a past felony conviction. And almost two-thirds of the voters vote to change that in 2018. And then we've kind of walked from there. And, and mind you, that's a huge, huge move here in Florida. Like the, the voters, from our perspective, man, just big, <laughs> big appreciation and gratitude on this Thanksgiving week that people saw the, the power of redemption and, and, and how important it was for people to be able to move forward with their lives, not just for themselves, but for our society overall. And it was a beautiful moment, right? It, it, it was very non-political as, as much as, you know, people were afraid that when you put a ballot initiative on the ballot that deals with voting and touches on race and crime and some of the divisive kind of topics that uh, exist in our society, you know, but it was just a beautiful thing. People rallied around some shared morals and values and we took a step forward as a state. And then we got this, it, this kind of got thrown into politics and it was very frustrating to watch because we could see it kind of play out. But uh, what happened ultimately was the legislature implemented legislation. The governor signed it into law that required people to pay their fines and fees before being eligible to vote. 
And it went from like, hey, in theory, that's something we could sit around and talk about here to how are we going to operationalize that in a state in which you have 67 different clerks of courts with 67 different financial management systems, some people who track, you know, restitution, other people who don't track, you know, restitution and a lot of different kind of management challenges. And so what we've seen is a real broken system explode into a situation in which we saw dozens of people getting arrested uh, for voting here in the state of Florida, right? All the people who were arrested had past convictions. And so it's, it's a, they, they put a human face on this broken system. And the, where the system's broken is, is on the front end. Um, and it involves kind of tracking all that information that uh, was, is required of the government associated with the bill that was passed to implement Amendment 4. And so what we now have is, is that uh, people who were arrested registered to vote. They were then given voting ID cards. They were told by government officials that they could vote. And so they thought they could vote. And they voted in 2020. And then just a few months ago, they found themselves getting investigated and then arrested for voter fraud so by the government. So they were arrested for having voted in 2020. Yes. Ah, that's a detail that I had not picked up on. Yeah, so this is a long time coming. Like, and I appreciate platforms like this where you can actually really dig into what's going on. Like, so if folks are interested, this really started last year when a data scientist started doing his own research and trying to track people's convictions with whether they were on the voter file. Right, and he found a bunch of discrepancies, thousands of them, and sent them to law enforcement across the state of Florida. So all of a sudden, these investigations began. And here's the deal. It's like, I think if we start talking about, you know, crime, right, which is part of the work that I do, you know, with, the, with our organization, I think most of us, if we sat around the table, would say the best way that you fight crime is to stop it from happening in the first place, right? So we should have recognized that the system was broken because people were registering to vote, even though they might, and the might's the word, they might be ineligible, right? There are certain convictions you're not eligible to vote. And I promise you that, you know, as a person with a felony conviction myself, there are data systems all over the place that work really well. If I try to get SNAP benefits or sign up for food stamps, you bet they can tell me quickly whether I'm eligible or not. And for the record, most people with convictions are not. You know, so it's one of those things where it's like if we can't, if we can't we have a good enough standard to meet the social services standard for something as important as voting? Because now you're looking at a situation where people thought they were eligible. They got voter ID cards, and then they were arrested, assuming that they had voter fraud. And if you looked at the videos of these individuals who, uh, because the, the Tampa Times uh, did a Freedom of Information request for the videos of them being arrested, they were all shocked. They were all surprised. So many of them just wanted to have their voice heard. Somebody at the DMV or within the government had told them that they could vote. Um, and if you can't count on the government to give you verification for voting, who can you count on? And I think that's the problem we've got now where you can't really verify some of these, you know, requirements mm -hmm. that you're supposed to meet, even the government can't verify it. And now it puts thousands of Florida citizens in a situation in which they're unsure of whether they're eligible or not. And because of the fear associated with potentially getting arrested, they decide to sit out, you know, this election, even though they might be eligible. Um, before we move forward, I want to go backwards just a bit real quickly. Um, we talked with Howard Simon on this show, who's mm. former uh, executive director of the ACLU of Florida. He was part of the team that wrote Amendment 4. That's right. And he came on 
on when all this started happening with the legislature wanting to add rules and said, you know, the intention of the people who wrote it and the understanding of the people who voted for it, in his opinion, was that it would be self-implementing. So all of this politicization of it came despite the fact that that wasn't the intention of the amendment. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, that was always our intention was that it was self-implementing. I mean, it was a beautiful thing, man. Like, it, it's in interesting because I think when we have these conversations, I feel like I'm living in a Dickens novel, right? It's the best of times. It's the worst of times. You see this incredible explosion and expansion of democracy and love and redemption. And then you see, like, this the side of the the political system that's a little jarring, right? Real cutthroat, zero sum, red, blue. And the conversation suddenly shifts to how people are going to vote instead of whether they can vote. And that, that changes some things. So you get thrown into that kind of political cauldron. Um, and yeah, they asked us what we thought. We said it's self-implementing. Um, but the legislature decided they were going to pass implementing legislation. So we had to roll up our sleeves. We we jumped in there as quick as we could and, and started to try and shape the, a, a bill that, you know, we didn't think we need, was needed in the first place. Hmm. But that's reality, you know. Uh, Patrick, um, let's step back and look at the big picture. Can you give us a sense of how Florida's stance on, you know, allowing former felons to vote or having a system compares to other states? Are we um, kind of an outlier? Are we very much an outlier? What's the big picture? Sure. Um, so as Neil mentioned, prior to Amendment 4, um, Florida was one of three states with a lifetime voting ban for people with felony convictions. And the only way for people to have their rights restored was through clemency. And that's a process that could take years and barred as many as 1.7 million people from voting by 2016. And under the current system, only people convicted of murder or a felony sex offense are barred from voting for life unless and until they received clemency, while people who were convicted of any other felony are eligible to have their rights automatically restored once they complete the terms of their sentence, including any probation or parole and um, payment of any disqualifying court debts. And there are several other states that require people to pay um, certain money ordered by a court for a felony conviction before they can vote, like Florida. Tennessee, for example, requires payment of court costs, restitution, and even child support obligations, while Arkansas requires payment of probation and parole fees, court costs, uh, fines, and restitution. And there are some states that also have rules that may not so clearly require payment of court debts before an individual's rights could be restored, but they ultimately function that way. That being said, none of those states' court debt requirements disenfranchise as many people as Florida's. In fact, while Florida's constitution may no longer have a blanket policy of criminal disenfranchisement for everyone who has a past conviction, as Neil mentioned, the way that the current system functions is there are hundreds of thousands of people barred from voting because they can't afford to pay off their court debt. And making matters worse, the state also doesn't keep any centralized records or a database um, for that debt or payments, making it nearly impossible for everyone, whether that be people with past convictions, local election officials, or the state itself to figure out who's eligible to vote. And now we have these prosecutions, which are also likely chilling eligible voters in Florida from voting. Do you know if there are any other states that require the kinds of paying fines and restitution and things like that, that just don't have a system for either the former felons or even the voting um, administrators to determine who can do it? 
So that's a great question. I was actually looking at Tennessee's voter registration form yesterday, and it looks like they actually have a, a website um, with a lot of information for people with past convictions to look at to see whether or not they're eligible. And it also has a phone number for people to call. That doesn't exist in Florida. How many people were arrested, Neil, in this in this event or situation around this election? Um, so over the course of the year, there were 34 people who were arrested. There were 20 who were arrested by the new election police task force that was created by the legislature. And and those are people in our communities, you know? I think about, like, when I see these videos, and I don't know what, what kind of multimedia stuff that you, you all have here, but when you see somebody being arrested, right, and you see their actual human reaction, like, I, I think of, there's a woman named Barbara uh, who, when we registered her to vote in 2020, right, she just started bawling, right? She asked for our team to, like, come together, pray for her, and she told us she only had six months to live, Right. So all of a sudden she became this like rallying cry for us. Like she, she, all she wanted to do was vote, man. She didn't want to go to some island and meet some celebrity or eat some food. Like she wanted to vote. She had never voted in her life. Unfortunately, she passed away um, right before the election. So her sister brought her ashes in to go vote with her. And it's like I sit there and think about these conversations, right, and, and, and how we had these 34 individuals, right, who have individual situations. Some of them were arrested for the fines and fees. Some of them were arrested because they uh, had convictions that precluded them from being eligible or appear to have convictions. And it's just a shame. Right. Because the system really should have caught all this on the front end. I mean, if we had a system like Alabama's. right? So Alabama has a 40 day window where they will give you a yes or a no. So many of our folks in here in Florida are getting a maybe. Right. But they think it's a yes because they got a voter ID card. And so you start to see the impact on, on real people's lives. But when a system isn't functioning the way we all would want it to work. And I actually think if everybody got in one room together and said, this is the vision, when somebody registers to vote within a certain time period, they get a yes or a no. And we have a live database that continue to work with them. That isn't too much to ask. It's also less costly than spending money on law enforcement, definitely less costly in human, uh, the human experience and then arresting people and us having a conversations about these voting issues rather than how can we work together to create a better and safer community, you know? If you're just joining the show, we're discussing the lack of a system for voters to determine whether they're eligible to vote here in Florida, particularly former felons or often referred to as returning citizens, 34 of which were arrested for voting back in 2020. They were arrested in the lead up to the midterm elections. I'm joined today by Neil Vols. He's deputy director for the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition and Patrick Berry. He's a counsel in the Brennan Center for Justice's Democracy Program. If you would like to engage with us about this conversation or any of our shows, please do so using WGCU's social media. We're on Facebook and we're on Twitter. So what are they facing um, in terms of criminal liability or, you know, what are these, what are they charged with and what are they facing and are you working with them in order to try to navigate this, Neil? Yeah, thank you for that question. So if, uh, the, the real galvanizing moment uh, from our perspective was when, when Governor DeSantis and, and, the, and the election police task force arrested 20 people for voter fraud, all at the same time, big press push. And we did what we try to do at, when we're at our best, which is to really focus on people, not politics and, and, and the people's experience. So we instantly went to set up a bail fund and a legal defense fund because here are 20 individuals 
um, and family and, and community impacted. And we said, look, we need to make sure on a very practical level, these folks aren't negotiating with the government under kind of a coercive system that can happen when you're in jail trying to negotiate a plea agreement over some charges. So we got everybody out and then we set up a legal defense system where we connected a lot of them with the attorneys if they wanted attorneys um, and then made sure to continue to connect with all the attorneys together. Um, and so all the, these cases are going to court rather than being pled out. So that was an interesting byproduct of a kind of strategy that was simply geared towards helping the individuals. Um, and then you're like, okay, now this, now where we are is that nobody's pleading out. Everybody's going to court. And the first case got dismissed a couple weeks ago on kind of jurisdictional issues. There were kind of a few things that the judge kind of dug into. But we know that there's a, a challenge here in the courtroom because what's happening in our conversation is we're bleeding two legal standards together. And I think this is important for your listeners to get when we're talking about this. Is There's one standard to remove somebody from the voter rolls. Right? It's basically called the preponderance of evidence. Are the facts there? Do you not live on that street anymore? Is your driver's license number not the one that's unregistered? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, you have a conviction that says you're not eligible. Those are the facts. You can remove somebody from the roles. You just have to tell them and then give them an opportunity to argue about it. But that's one piece. It's a wildly different standard to deprive somebody of their liberty. Like this is constitutional stuff. So it's like beyond a reasonable doubt, can you prove that these individuals were trying to commit fraud, right? And that means you have to show intent. And the videos themselves just completely blow away that idea that somehow there was some scheme. These folks were... They wanted to be a part of society, man. Like they had been kicked to the curb for decades in some instances. And suddenly the government is telling them you can vote and my voice can be heard. So like you see this weird disconnect between the narrative around the crime and the, all this like, hey, this political blah, blah, blah. And then the real human lives who are on the front lines in this case on this real conversation we're having about democracy. Patrick, is the Brennan Center for Justice in any way um, working directly with these people, working with counsel, doing something to try to, to help them through this time? Sure. So the Brennan Center isn't working directly with any of the individuals who were arrested. However, we're continuing to engage in advocacy work to try to make sure that Florida realizes the promise of Amendment 4. So in August, we, along with the ACLU of Florida, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and the National ACLU's Voting Rights Project released a resource that's meant for lawyers and advocacy groups to help people with past convictions determine their eligibility to register and vote. And that resource, um, which is over 25 pages long, is intended to start um, as a starting point, however. Um, and then also in October, we, along with those same legal organizations, released a resource laying out 10 reasons why courts should toss these prosecutions uh, some of which um, Neil has already touched on. And that resource, along with the guidance I, I just mentioned, is available on our website, brennancenter.org. And we'll link that on our website. Um, Neil, you mentioned something about a data scientist. What I'm trying to get at is they say there's no system to determine who is or isn't, but they found people who aren't. Like, merge those two ideas. Like, there must be some way to determine these people or they couldn't have found them to arrest them, right? Yeah. No, that's exactly right. I, I And I'm... Um I'm definitely someone like so I have a felony conviction, right? So I am sensitive about labels and assigning motives and stuff like that. So I'm not really, really sure what everybody's motive in all these moving parts were, right? But I do believe what's happened is this 
this moment with all this light on this issue has educated a lot of people, including people inside the system, right? Who my hope, like giving them the benefit of the doubt would be like, hey, this is a wake up call, right? Like this system hasn't worked for decades, right? There's a piece of it around the verification of people with convictions in Florida has been broken for decades. We saw it in the Bush v. Gore race, right? So you add Amendment 4 and an explosion of hundreds of thousands of people coming into that system, and it it's just glaring that it's broken, you know? So I think at the end of this process, folks even on the inside have started to figure out, oh, yeah, this is an information management challenge. We need to get, you know, like, we're the ones who have the resources. We, only we can actually give the assurance. And they're trying to, they're trying to catch up. But do we know how they came up with this list of 20 people? That's the question. Oh, oh, yeah, no. Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, I, I answered another question. I apologize <laughs> yeah, for that. Yeah, you yeah. want me to answer the question you asked. I apologize. Yes, the that came from... This data scientist, I don't know what the process was in terms of how they filtered through the information. Was it somebody who worked for the Department of Corrections or the, the uh, Department of State? Or I, I, I have, We don't I have, know the origin I have story not, on that. I, I know the gentleman's name and I know that he's an activist, uh, but I don't really know a lot about him. And again, same thing. I don't know what his motives and things were, but uh, he, he did some data scientist work, crunched a bunch of numbers, compared the voter file and, and some of the publicly available Department of Corrections information and said, hey, I'm going to send this to law enforcement. Hmm. I understand that uh, former Republican State Senator Jeff Brandis, who wrote the implementing language for Amendment 4, is now quoted as saying, we need to fix this. Um, is there progress being made? Are there is there groundwork being laid to fix this and create a system? Yeah, I, I know there's conversations already happening with policymakers around kind of the shared idea that it needs to be fixed. Um, it's, it's very interesting, um, and, and I know from our perspective, right, like, hey, when you're the person with the headache, <laughs> you know, like you have way more urgency. So I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm starting to have some conversations, and you can see why this system was broken in the first place, like really parochial, you know, issues around clerks of courts. We have 67 of them in the state, right? They don't necessarily talk to each other in the same language. You know, there are some... There is some kind of data systems that everybody shares that maybe we could work with. Um, but then ultimately, it's also having one entity within the state be responsible. Like, you know, my mom always used to say, how do you starve a horse? Tell two people to feed it, right? So it's like we need one entity that's ultimately responsible. Right now, we have multiple. Um, so there are some challenges that that reek of kind of bureaucratic, like, problems, <laughs> yeah, like territorial, like playing in my sandbox kind of conversations that I don't know how equipped we are to make that happen. It's going to require some real leadership. Some, Well, we, we live in a world of, of, of high-end database interconnectivity. I mean, I'm sure, my, from my personal opinion, if we were to hand this off to like an Amazon of the world or somebody, they could aggregate this data <laughs> and have a system in place. Dude, the, the Ukrainian army could have this fixed in three weeks. Like, <laughs> and that's, that's no, right? I mean, we're talking about information. Has Governor DeSantis at all weighed in on this idea of needing a system? Publicly, he has basically kind of laid down his argument that the individuals involved 
are the responsible entity. And I have not heard him say anything publicly for or against working with the system. But but his his the folks in his orbit are part of some of these conversations that are starting to happen. Dude, I'm a hope peddler, right? So I know what we got to do. We got to go try and fix this system right now. So that's what we're going to try and do. But I don't know how it's going to play out for sure. Um, uh, Patrick, I'll ask you this first, and then I'll ask Neil. Um, and then we're pretty much running up to the end of the show here. Um, um, do you have a sense of whether you know what's unfolded to these people being arrested has you know led to people not voting because they were concerned they would be arrested? So absolutely, um, we've seen anecdotes in Florida media. We've also seen anecdotes in more national media. So, for example, the Marshall Project recently wrote a story about how individuals with past convictions in Alabama have been chilled from voting because they're concerned about, you know, the prosecutions in Florida targeting people confused about their eligibility to vote could also happen in their state. And I would also just to go back to your previous question to add that since lawmakers enacted uh, Senate Bill 7066 in 2019 to implement Amendment 4, the state has struggled to identify people who are ineligible under that new system in a timely way. In fact, between the date that Amendment 4 uh, took effect on January 8, 2019 and May 2020, a representative with the Department of State testified in federal court that the department had identified as many as 85,000 pending voter registrations for people with past convictions in need of screening, a process that um, the representative said could take until 2026 at the earliest to complete, or possibly 2030, depending on the amount of registrations in advance of the November 2020 presidential election, because the Department of State's caseworkers could only process an average of 57 registrations per day. And many of the individuals charged registered before May 2020, suggesting that they may be among the 85,000 pending registrations, but we don't know. Um, have you talked to anybody or do you have any sense of whether people were, you know, pushed away from voting? Uh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's that's family, man. That's our community and all across the state, 100 percent. I mean, we got to a point where at the end of the campaign, much of our conversation really like we ended in, in, in the kind of a positive note because we know that this is a long term journey. We didn't get to Amendment 4 overnight. Like In order to get Amendment 4 on the ballot and petitions signed and passed, we had to ask people who could vote to vote for us. So we ended up talking to folks like, hey, look, if you're unsure, um, I get it. Like if you've, you've made your determination, but man, stay in the game. Like go get four friends, go get four loved ones, go find some folks to be your voice in this process. Cause this thing ain't, ain't over, man. It's It's a long, it's a long walk. Um, and so yeah, hundred percent, there was, there was a chilling effect for sure. What else are you at the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition like looking at? Is this like the, the center of gravity of your efforts right now? Or I, or do you have other threads out there? Yeah, our, our, our primary policy goals revolve around uh, second chance employment uh, issues and economic mobility for people who've been through the system, access to housing, and also access to democracy. So yeah, this is one of the big issues for us. And it, we find that they're very intertwined. Uh, honestly, we would have loved to have spent the last six months talking about the power of second chance employment, how when you have a labor shortage and you have a bunch of great people who can't get into the marketplace because of some past experience with the criminal justice system, let's do what JP Morgan's doing, right? Like they figured out 10% of their hires last year were people with records, you know? So it's kind of like, there's a great win-win here. 
But instead, man, we're talking about this kind of thing. So our, our deal is the empowerment of people who have been through the criminal justice system and a belief that when we help this particular group, everybody in society benefits. You know, if somebody gets a job, that employer benefits, the family benefits, the community benefits. We can spend less money on law enforcement because it has a real impact on reoffense rates. Um, and so we're trying to focus on those areas in which, like Amendment 4, really it's not political, right? It's just kind of like, hey, let's put our engineering hats on, let's put our social service hats on, let's put our budget hats on and kind of work this stuff out. Um, so, but to your point, this issue around the voter verification is vital for us. Uh, last thing I will say, and thank you for the question, would be that we see it intertwined with all the work, right? So one of the things that the DeSantis administration did, which we applauded and, and, and appreciate, was change the rules around clemency. Um, so you lose your voting rights uh, when you get a felony conviction, but you also lose all your civil rights. So like the ability to run for office, to serve on a jury, um, and, and rights restoration in Florida can really impact employment and access to housing and even being like on the PTA at your kid's school, right? The, the question sometimes, have you had your civil rights restored? The governor wants to make, make it automatic for anyone who's eligible to vote to get their civil rights restored. That's a huge issue in the returning citizen community, right? Because you could have hundreds of thousands of people suddenly in a much better position to help their families and thrive because they have access to housing and employment and all these things. But really, it comes down to the exact same issue we're talking about. If we can get that front end of the voter verification process fixed, where you know with 100% certainty that you're a yes or a no, and then you simply tie it to the civil rights restoration, which is what the governor already wants to do, then you're, yes, you're dealing with a bureaucracy because there's two systems doing these one-on-one -on -one investigations right now and we're spending millions of dollars on people to do casework, right? When we really could follow other states and get an automated process that gets you about 99.5% there. And then we got to figure out what to do from that point. Well, we had you on the show back when you were still collecting signatures. So you know, yeah, hopefully, right. hopefully we're not talking about this four years from oh, now. Oh, come on, man. Um, I'm hearing it. Neil Voles is Deputy Director for the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. Neil, thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. And Patrick Berry is a counsel in the Brennan Center for Justice's Democracy Program. Patrick, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Thanks for what you do, Patrick. You can find links to the documents that Patrick mentioned and links to information about the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition on our website, wgcu.org gcl. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website or wherever you find podcasts. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM. We are NPR for Southwest Florida.